Welcome to Photoactive, a podcast about photography in the Apple ecosystem. I'm Kirk McElhern. And I'm Jeff Carlson. This episode is brought to you by Masters of Photography, online masterclasses with the greatest photographers in the world. We'll have a special offer for you on Masters of Photography courses later in the show. There's this thing in photography. I don't want to say the word because I don't like the word. People talk about it a lot if they're into, like, buying expensive lens with very wide apertures. You know, those 1.2 apertures. But I don't want to say the word. I don't like the word. It's a dumb word. When I started shooting film back in the day, no one ever said this word. And I'm not going to say the word the whole episode. Jeff might say the word, but I'm not going to. <laughs> Basically, this word describes what, what normal people call background blur. The fact that when you're shooting at a low aperture, so a wide open aperture, remember the lower the f-stop, the greater the aperture size. When you're shooting at a low aperture and you're focused on something in the foreground, the background is going to be blurred. The real term for this is shallow depth of field. Shallow depth of field. Five syllables. That's an awful lot for some people to say. <laughs> um, but other people, including Apple's Phil Schiller recently, like to say this other word over and over, even though he doesn't know how to pronounce it. Jeff, you don't seem to be as irked as I am by this word. I am not. In fact, coming into this episode, I believe I had said this to you privately, like it became my personal mission to get you to say this word. I'm not going to be that mean because I know that you're not a big fan of it. The word for other people is... Hold on, I'm going to plug my ears. <laughs> Go ahead. ...is bouquet. Now, not bouquet is in a flower, and it's not bouquet, as uh, Phil Schiller recently said, and as a lot of people say, it's B-O-K-E-H, which turns out to be a term that was introduced in the late 90s in a magazine article. It, it's not even, like, it doesn't even have, like, a, a traditional photographic lineage to it. But bouquet, that term, has come to define the look, not what's actually happening. So when somebody says bouquet, they want that blurry background, that buttery look in the background of portraits that lens manufacturers like to tout. They're describing the end result. They're not describing depth of field and how to actually get there. This is a very, very popular look right now. And I think we'll, we'll talk about that in terms of it sort of being a fad. But it does actually have uses, and there are good reasons to use it, but not to the devoted extent where that is the end result. Like, you have to have this or your photos aren't good. Yes, there is the cult of background blur. It's a better way of saying it. Yes, where people think that this is an essential element for good photos. And the problem is, this is an effect when you think about it. it, it's an effect that, that comes from physics, the physics of light. The smaller your aperture, so the higher the f-stop, the greater the depth of field. This is something that you learn pretty early on in photography. And, and this is one reason why you want a camera that has good high ISO performance. So you can use high f-stops and have greater depth of field, particularly if you're shooting a landscape you generally don't want anything to be blurred. You want it to be sharp. And the greater the f-stop, the greater the range of things that will be in focus. So I'm just going to throw out a number here. This isn't the real number. But let's say that at f3, things between 5 and 10 feet are in focus. When you get to f8 or 11, things between 2 and 30 feet or infinity will be in focus. And what this means is that with the higher f-stop, you don't have to worry so much about your focus being pinpoint perfect. 
But with a lower f-stop, you have to be a lot more careful to get your photo sharp enough. And this is definitely a deliberate choice because one reason to have a, a nice blurry background is not just because you want things to be deliberately out of focus, although that may happen too, but usually it's because you want something in the foreground or something in the middle ground that is specifically in focus that you want to draw attention to without having the distraction of, of everything else around it. This can be a really nice effect if you are in, say, a crowded place and you don't wanna just see all sorts of different faces and people and, and what have you in the background. You just wanna focus on this one person or this one monument or something like that. It becomes a very deliberate choice by giving you the control over what aperture you choose to make that effect happen. I think this background blur is ideal for portraits, portraits which are headshots for the most part. If it's a full body, it's a little bit harder. It's great for macro photography because when you're shooting a flower or a caterpillar or something, you don't want the background to be distracting. But it really doesn't work all the time. And this is not something that you see, let's say, in street photography. And, and there's a good reason for this. In street photography, a photographer is more interested in catching a moment and doesn't have time to change the settings. So what they'll generally do is shoot around F8 or F11 to make sure that there's as much as possible in focus. So it's very rare that you're going to see this kind of background blur in that type of photography. Now, in portrait photography, you only really need it if you're taking a portrait of someone outdoors or with things around them. If you're doing a headshot in a studio, you don't really need it. In fact, I, I would assume that I have no idea how professional headshot photographers work, but I would assume that they are not really concerned about it. They've got artificial lighting. They probably want more depth of field because you want everything from the nose to the ears to be in focus. And again, in macro photography, it looks great because often in macro photography, you're selecting a part of what you're shooting, like a part of a flower to be in focus. And that what's, that's what gives the photo certain characteristics. You mentioned having the face in focus, the nose and the ears. When I first got a lens that could really do the shallow depth of field, I think it was a 50 millimeter 1.8. Of course, I wanted to shoot everything at, at f1.8 because you get that nice, that nice blurry background. Well, when you're doing that, and especially when you have something like f1.4 or even f1.2, and there are even now lenses that are like f0.9, super wide aperture lenses, going back to depth of field, that area that is in focus at such wide apertures becomes very, very, very slim. And so it becomes difficult to actually focus on someone's face because at, at, at that range, at that aperture, you could have the person's eyes in focus, but the front of their nose could be out of focus. Their ears could be out of focus. I had a shot, um, I'll see if I can find it and put it in the show notes, of a snow-covered railing. And you know, I, I was going for that, you know, that look because I, I wanted the crystal of the snow and the big blurry background and the wintry, etc. As the as the railing kind of fades into blur as, as it moves away, yeah, exactly, exactly, like, like like the perspective, all of that. Well, that's great, except when you're looking top to bottom in the frame, everything in the foreground from like like the bottom third is also out of focus. So it's like blurry, 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 super sharp focus. Blurry, 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 blurry. You know, this 
almost unreadable image. So when you are going for these effects, you really have to be careful, especially if you're doing something where you're not, you know, on a tripod, you're not shooting macro, you're, you're sort of moving around. It's much, much harder to get that focus. I'm going to put a link in the show notes to an article on Slate called The Timeless Beauty of Cape Cod. And this is an article with photos by Joel Myrowitz. And I want to discuss the first photo at the very top of the article. This is one of my absolute favorite photos of his that I know. If you look at this photo, it's extraordinary. There's this girl standing next to a tree. She's perfectly sharp. There is a bit of background blur behind her, but there's also sideways blur because he must have been shooting this slow enough on a tripod that you actually see the movement. And there's something about the blur of this girl among this entire crowd of people with the house behind and the trees and all that, and her being perfectly sharp and in focus that sets it apart. I don't think he was intentionally going for the background blur, but even in a photo like this that's very busy, that's not a single head against a background or a flower, background blur can be very interesting when it's used appropriately. If you look at this photo, it's fascinating. There's a girl to the left of the tree who's watching the camera trying to figure out what's going on. There's the guy with his hand up who's making a gesture to measure something. And then there's the woman just to the right of the subject, and her head is blurred because she's either turning toward the camera or turning away at the moment he's shooting it. And in this example, we're not talking about some massive amount of, of background blur. This is just the the natural uh, blur just because what's in the background is is in the distance, which is also something that you need to take into consideration. Things that are farther away will be more out of focus depending on, on your settings. When you look at this picture, what's amazing is, is just how effective that sharpness is. You cannot look at this picture and not go straight to the woman in the blue shirt because she is in focus and she is staring at you. She's staring at you and she's sharp and it's the blue and the white and the tree that, that not quite bisects the photo in the middle, but she's almost in the middle. And it's like the lack of sharpness on everything else just leads you like a funnel to that point. So blur is a useful tool. But again, you won't see this very often on this type of photography. Go down the rest of the article. These are all very well-known photos from Joel Meyerowitz's book, Cape Cod Light. The only one that's blurred is the last one. It's blurred because the sheets are moving in the wind. He's not using the blur as an effect. Even the people on the beach, uh, you can see that the people at the very front are sharp and, and the, the water in the back is sharp. So it's an effect that can be used tastefully. But the problem is that when people overdo it and they have to have the absolute widest aperture lens to get the most background blur, because they think that this is some effect that makes their photos look more professional or better, I think, as opposed to, you know, we see this a lot if you look on Instagram or in Facebook photo groups. It's as if people don't realize that it's the composition that's more important than the background blur. Well, I think another factor here is having such an extreme blurry background is a deliberate effect that you make through lens or we'll talk about computationally. And I think part of that appeal is it says this is not a snapshot. This is something that is not more artsy, although it, it can be, but, but this is a more deliberate shot than something that I just did a quick snap and, and walked away. And I think that appeals to people because 
you know, it it does convey a little bit more of that. I am not just some dude with a little point and shoot camera. I know what I'm doing. But the the other side of that, of course, is that we see it a lot. We see it overdone, and oftentimes it's taken to too much of an extreme. You made a good point there, and I mentioned earlier that the background blur is dependent on the aperture that you use when you shoot. But the background blur is also dependent on the focal length of your lens. If you have a very wide-angle lens, you will almost never have background blur. Things will be in focus from front to back. The type of lens that you use to get background blur is a long lens. In, in full frame, this would be like an 80 or 90 or 135 millimeter lens. That's the only time you're going to get the background blur. It's just the physics of light, the way it works. And as you said, it, it doesn't look like a snapshot because an Instamatic has a very wide angle lens because it doesn't focus. The whole idea is that everything's in focus. A smartphone, while it does focus, does have a very wide angle lens as well, with the exception of the second telephoto lens and certain iPhones and other cameras. But the point is to make it easier so your photos are sharp and they're not out of focus. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about blurring the background with software. Masters of Photography is a unique online learning platform that brings together some of the world's most acclaimed photographers, the masters. You can enjoy an unprecedented insight into the way these photographers work during intimate lessons that capture their knowledge, ethos, and philosophy. I've taken the Masters of Photography course with Joel Myrowitz, one of my favorite photographers, and I was impressed by his passion for photography and his desire to transmit his knowledge to others. With more than five hours of video and 34 lessons, Joel Myrowitz discusses technique, inspiration, and his career, and gives some practical tips about shooting in the street, taking portraits, and even still life photography. I strongly recommend this course with Joel Myrowitz, and Masters of Photography has a special offer for Photoactive listeners. Get 5% off any course with the code PHOTOACTIVE. Go to mastersof.photography and enter the coupon code PHOTOACTIVE, or use the link in our show notes. That's mastersof.photography. I really enjoyed this course, and I think you will too. Before we jump into the computational software aspect of this, I wanted to mention one more thing. When you are looking into lenses that have wider apertures and can create this sort of nice uh, blurry background, one of the things you'll read about is the aperture shape. And a lot of times the bokeh... Oh, I said it. I'm sorry. Oh. A lot of times the effect will be circular. Sometimes it's it's more of like a, a six-sided look. As things get more blurry, lights in the background have distinctive shapes. And so there are some people who will buy you know one lens over the other because they want that effect, but they also want the background lights to be in those sorts of shapes. And in fact, in an earlier episode, Kirk mentioned a, a LensBaby lens that he had gotten. LensBaby is known for its tilt-shift lenses, and they just released a tilt-shift lens, we'll have a link in the show notes, that actually has an adjustable blade. Uh, it's a little bit of plastic that helps adjust the, the shape of that, of that effect. So if you are doing something where you are looking for this effect, you may want to look into just exactly how that manifests itself. And, you know, if it's like a nice uh, circular look and some lenses give you like an onion look, I've heard that term, or an onion skin look where it's just like a bunch of little slices rather than nice little round pops of light. 
So something else to be aware of as you're researching if this is the look you're going for. I would like to find a lens that does salami background blur or chorizo, you know, something spicy. <laughs> as you were describing all that, it made me realize, and, and this is something I've seen often enough, it's not uncommon to see wedding photos of the bride and groom where the background, you know, all the lights that are hung up for the wedding are all blurry. And, and that's actually a good effect because as a, a wedding is a performance, the photography of a wedding is capturing a performance for posterity. So there's nothing wrong with harding it up a bit with that sort of effect. And it works like that because you want to make the halo around the happy couple and, and that kind of works. But when I see people just taking average shots, you know, in the street that have all this background blur, it's like, I can't help thinking Cartier-Bresson didn't care about background blur. Ah, uh, but would he care about it now? That's an interesting question. Well, you know, what, what would Cartier-Bresson do is the big question, right? Would he be using digital? Would he still be using a 50 millimeter lens? Not that he only used it, but most of the time he used it. But that's actually an interesting point because that lens is going to have less background blur than, say, a telephoto, as we mentioned earlier. So you don't necessarily need a fancy lens because computer software can do this for us. Since the iPhone 7 Plus with dual cameras there is a wide-angle lens and a telephoto lens. I'm doing air quotes around the telephoto because it's really not that much of a telephoto. And using the two cameras allows the phone to take two pictures at the same time to isolate the foreground from the background to allow you to manipulate that background layer. And we've just seen that to an even greater extent with the latest iPhone, the XS and the XS Max Plus Super Deluxe. <laughs> Jeff, you got a new iPhone, didn't you? I did. I, I got the, the X. I'm sorry. Oh, I'm, we're even saying it wrong. The iPhone 10 S. Sorry. Yes. The X is a 10, but I still say X in my head. Sorry, Apple. Yes, so do I. Actually, I don't have to apologize to Apple. It's their fault for, for. No, exactly. It's their fault for being confusing. <laughs> and I will not forget that Tim Cook once said iPhone X during the presentation of the original iPhone X. And that to me confirmed that there is, you know, the dual pronunciation is acceptable. He's so off brand. In any case, the way that it works now is that you actually get to manipulate the amount of background blur with a, a sort of a slider according to f-stop. And Jeff, you did some scientific experiments taking selfies recently, and you're going to put some photos in the show notes. Tell us how this works. What the whole feature does, and, and let's step back and just say, like, like all of this is fake. You're not getting any of this because of the lenses, even though you've got uh, the, the telephoto and the other thing. And so what, what the software is doing is it, it is isolating you. The, the 10S does a better job. And I think it's partially from the, the dedicated processors that the 10S and the 10S Max have that are improved over the, the earlier versions. It's doing a better job of creating this depth map where it, it recognizes you as a person and it can do a better job of sort of figuring out edge detail like hair and, and a general improvement over what was available with, with the earlier models. So in, in that sense, the 10S is improved. But in terms of as you're editing in the Photos app, you actually now get this aperture slider. It's not a slider. It's like a, a, a dial, I guess. You basically swipe left and right, and you can go from uh, f1.4 simulated up to f16. And your f16 is basically what the camera is shooting, where everything is, is nice and in focus. And I have to say, even though... Some of the, the pictures that I posted, um, I had like 
a few professional photographers say, wow, the background on that is terrible, but the colors seem nice. That's coming from a, a guy who, you know, shoots events all the time. For general use, it comes out really quite well. And just as we were talking with the lenses, when you crank it up to f1.4, it does get a little more obvious. Uh, it's a little too blurry. It just doesn't look right. But right there in the middle, like f2, f2.8, f4.5, I think is, is the default. It's actually not a bad effect. And the background, at least in, in, in this version, they've done a better job of making it look more like a natural blur, natural fall off. Before, I think they were just applying a, a Gaussian blur, which just says blur everything. And so everything just looked blurry and still shallow. Now, it's not perfect, but nothing ever is computationally, but it gets better and better and better. Looking at what this is producing compared to what the first you know, iPhone 7s did, I'm actually honestly impressed. I'm going to put a link in the show notes to Instagram to the hashtag iPhone portrait mode. And if you look at this, you can see all sorts of real life examples. And there are many cases where it looks fine. Some don't really look good. What's interesting is there are an awful lot of photos with this hashtag that don't look like they were shot with portrait mode. So you've really got to scroll a bit to find them. A lot of them look very good and none of them have that fake look. Every once in a while, you see one where it looks, there's kind of the edges around the person's shoulders or something where it looks like they're in front of a green screen and it just doesn't look perfect. But for most of them, it looks fine. Now, the reason that Apple did this was because, let's be honest, there's not much they can put in the iPhone to get people to upgrade. And the camera is one of the elements that people like to have as a new toy. And what else could you do? I'd love to see them put a monochrome sensor in the iPhone to be able to take black and white only photos, but they'll never do that. So they latched on to an effect that is a bit faddish. And you see this a lot, you know, in portraits and it, it does have that classical portrait look. But the problem is that do people really care that much about it? Is it that necessary when you're taking a picture of someone to have the background blur? On the iPhone XS, does this go on automatically or do you still have to turn it on manually? Do you get the option to take any photo you've shot and alter it afterwards? No, this is only for the portrait mode. So you have to switch to the portrait mode to get this effect. Before, when you did the portrait mode, you would get the effect and you had the option of keeping that the effect version and the uh, original version. Here, by adding that, that slider, it, it adds a feature so you have more control over the simulated aperture. And that way you can say, wow, this really worked. I'm going to stick with it. Or, wow, this did not work at all, but I can just switch it over to F F16 and it's still a great clear shot. Right. So that's the difference. As you said, you get more control over how much blur there is. I'll put a link in the show notes to a photo I shot of Rosalind the cat with my iPhone 8 Plus in portrait mode. And what's interesting is doesn't really work too well with cats because of the whiskers. They kind of get fuzzed out. And the, the bit around the hair on the head, it, it doesn't look that clean. But nevertheless, it's not that bad. So I'm looking at this photo right now in, in photo in the Photos app. And of course, you have these different lighting possibilities. It's the, the first one is natural and then studio and then contour. 
and stage, which is all black, and then stage mono. And in the natural lighting, it doesn't look too bad. In the other ones, it really doesn't work that well. If you remember when they first introduced portrait mode, they made a whole big deal about the different lighting modes. They didn't even mention it this year, did they? No, no, they're they're pretty much the same. I would be very interested to see a picture of Rosalind with an iPhone XS, honestly, because I think that it would do a better job of, of isolating those edges. And as a result of that, the the lighting modes, especially like, like the spotlight mode, uh, tend to work a little better. Again, like your mileage definitely varies. Uh, it's very hit or miss. And what's nice is you can say, wow, that doesn't work. And you can just turn off the effect. And, and you know, that's that. I have, you know, a, a shot of me. I was in a coffee shop and I was wearing some uh, big headphones. And the headphones just look like creamy, blurry marshmallow because the the camera did not know what to do with that part of my outline. So, you know... It works sometimes, and sometimes it works really well. Sometimes the effect is just spot on. And I, I would say most of the time it's not so great, but acceptable. And every once in a while it's laughable. But that's okay because these are, you know, mostly kind of throwaway shots. Exactly. You don't worry too much if it's not going to be perfect. Just for comparison, I will also include the picture of Rosalind the cat with portrait mode turned off. And of course, what's interesting is the portrait mode is not baked into your photo. You can switch it off either on the iPhone or the iPad or in the Photos app. So you get the option to change your mind afterwards. In addition to adjusting what you've done, you get the option to change things. And and that's kind of interesting. As you say, if it doesn't work, well, that's too bad. And you can just change it at that point. I also want to point out, just from a, a technical standpoint, if you have an iPhone 10, you don't get this uh, simulated aperture control, unfortunately. It's, it, it's reserved just for photos taken with the uh, iPhone XS or iPhone XS Max. However, if a friend of yours sends you a portrait mode photo and you have an iPhone 10, and I believe possibly an iPhone 8 Plus, then that control does show up. So... The camera in the 10s and 10s Max is what's allowing a lot of this to happen, and iOS 12 provides the editing capability on some models. I would guess it's all very computationally based in which processor it has or something. Just so you're not looking at your 10 and wondering where this is, that's part of Apple's uh, enticement to get you to upgrade. Isn't it? Yeah, they're, they're tricky. What's interesting, however, and, and this will lead us into a topic that hopefully we'll cover in more depth in the future, is what this computational photography allows us to do. It's really quite fascinating that this can be done in software. And, and there's other things that will be that one can do in software in, in the future. This is a first step, but Apple mentioned a number of other things about this Super HDR or whatever they called it. We'll talk about HDR in another episode. But this is opening the door to a whole lot of photographic possibilities that we don't have right now. I also want to bring this back to what we were saying earlier and uh, people's expectations. By way of a story, a woman on a photo workshop that I was on recently was not as familiar with using a DSLR, but she, of course, had been shooting with her iPhone a lot. And so she kept asking me how she could get that blurry background effect. And I had to explain to her that basically the camera she had and the lens she had, it was a, a, a kit lens or something that, that did not have a very wide aperture. 
it would be very difficult to get that. And, you know, we, we spent some time talking about depth of field and, and focal length and all of that. But my point here is that features like this on the iPhone and seeing these results get people more interested in that look, and then they want to know how to make that look. So it's sort of double-edged. On one side, they want to make this happen because they've seen it, and that's good because hopefully they will learn more about what we've been talking about. On the other hand, it's really easy to make this happen on a phone, even if it's not the best result. And people will just sort of assume like, okay, I've got my, my Fuji or my Canon. Where's the button that will make this? I almost said it. I'm sorry. Okay. I think we've gone far enough. You've only said the word once or twice, and that's good. It's time for our snapshots. What have you got this week, Jeff? When you were talking about doing macro photography and flowers and lots of close-up things, that made me think of having a little portable diffuser. I don't know if you use a diffuser when you're out shooting in the garden, but the idea is if you have really bright sunlight, you get a lot of harsh highlights and shadows. And so what you want is something that will diffuse that light. Well, you can buy massive, you know, 45, 63-inch diffusers, but that's kind of ridiculous. And so what I have, it's a Westcott 14-inch one-stop diffuser. It's teeny. I mean, you can put this in your bag and carry it around. It's lightweight. It pops open, but it's not really huge. It's not something that you're going to use probably for a portrait session, but when you just need a little bit of diffusion, especially with that sort of macro work, it's perfect or if you're like really close up, it works great. It's like 14 bucks or maybe even less. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah, I've used the diffuser a little bit, but actually I use a reflector more often because what I like to do is turn down the exposure a bit and eliminate some of the shadows you get underneath the flower. So I'll take a reflector and put it on the opposite side of the sun or like 120 degrees from the sun to get a different angle. We'll, we'll discuss that in another show. We'll talk about lighting and the kind of things you can do on the cheap just worth pointing out that the kind of thing that you have there, the diffuser, the reflector I have, these things are a bear to get them to twist up and put them back into their holders, aren't they? Some of them, some of them. This one, actually, I really like it because it is really, really small. I do have a big uh, reflector backdrop thing where I swear for the first 10 times I had to keep a YouTube video on my phone that showed me how <laughs> to fold it back up again. It was, it, it was crazy. But something like this, uh, it's super easy. What about you for this week? I have something really exciting. It's an SD card. I used to not care about SD cards too much. And then I tried to start shooting in burst mode on my Fujifilm X-Pro2. And what happens is you get a few shots. It goes like this. Click, 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 click click because the camera can't write to the SD card fast enough. So the shutter has to slow down. Now I don't shoot in burst mode a lot. Every once in a while I do, you know, filming things that are moving. I don't shoot sports or anything, but it seemed to me foolish to not have the ability to do that. And I think I can go in JPEG only up to 20 frames a second or something in my camera. So it wasn't that expensive to buy a better SD card. And this is a SanDisk Extreme Pro and I'll put a link in the show notes because one of the thing about SD cards is there are so many different models and it's really hard to know which is which. And this really doesn't say exactly what it is, but I think the key here is it's SDHC2. And my X-Pro2 has two slots. And one of them is the faster version like this and the other one is the slower version. 
it says 300 megabytes per second. That's the read speed, not the write speed. It wasn't cheap. I think it was 60 pounds or something like that for 32 gigs. But it's just one of those things it's better to have in case you need it, even if I don't use it a lot. So when the MacBook Pros with the USB-C connections came out, I wrote an article, a series of articles for Macworld about SD card readers that work with that slot. And I ran into the same thing that you just touched on, which is there are so many different specs and labels and nomenclature for all the different features. So we'll put a link in the show notes. I actually ended up writing a separate article to just say, okay, what does all this stuff mean? Because it can be very confusing. Okay, that's the show. Go out and take some pictures. Don't blur them too much. Don't go overboard with it. But if you'd like, drop us some examples of your best photos with background blur in the Facebook group. And please make a note if you were taking this with a, an iPhone or with uh, a regular camera. A real camera. A <laughs> traditional camera. All right. Thanks for listening to Photoactive. You can find show notes, including any photos we discuss in the show, at photoactive.co. That's photoactive.co. We couldn't afford the M. You can subscribe to Photoactive in your favorite podcast app or in Apple Podcasts. See the links on our website. And think about leaving us a rating or review on iTunes or in your podcast app. Don't forget that you can get 5% off any course at Masters of Photography with the coupon code PHOTOACTIVE. That's PHOTOACTIVE in one word. Until next week... Thanks again for listening.